0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. So, at the conclusion of chapter 3, God expels Adam and the woman, who is now named Eve, from the Garden of Eden. And if you'll excuse the mixed metaphor, all that mixed dancing is about to bear fruit. And within four verses, a lot happens. Eve has two sons, the elder Cain becomes a farmer, and the younger Hevel becomes a shepherd. Cain and Hevel bring gifts to God, God accepts the latter and rejects the former, and by the end of the fifth verse, Cain has a sad, which God notices and comments, Is it not thus, if you intend good, bear it aloft? But if you do not intend good, at the entrance is sin, a crouching demon, Toward you his lust, but you can rule it over him. Perhaps out of perplexity at the chastisement or, or downright ornery, orneriness, orneriness, <laughs> that's a hard word to pronounce, orneriness, Cain um, says something to Hevel, what it is the text doesn't really say, and, and quote, then it was when they were out in the field that Cain rose up against Hevel, his brother, and he killed him. When God confronts Cain, Cain infamously quips, Am I the watcher of my brother? But God bulldozes over Cain's feigned ignorance. A sound, your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. He condemns Cain to wander, yet also offers him protection through a sign, so quote, that whoever came upon him would not strike him down. Cain then settles in the land of Nod and begins the beginning including some interspecies mixed dancing, all the way until Noah, the guy who is tasked by God with building a large, pitch-covered floating box. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it. As I mentioned last week, Genesis is a well-trod path. The stuff of many, a Sunday school art project and story time. And uh, we thus feel that we know, you know Genesis pretty well, and uh, we know it as well as we know, say, the wild, where the wild things are. But, you know, chances are, however, we, that we skate on both. <clears throat> but if we take a moment, as we did last week, and look more closely at the words of the text, we can discover some interesting things. The most important being that as adults, we should probably not be satisfied with the grounding of our religious tr- identity and tradition in children's stories. Being adults, we should try to bring adult perspectives to the text. So this week, we'll consider three curiosities. First, we'll confront the terse Torah full on as we unpack Cain's rivalry with Hevel. Then we'll dig a little into the list of his descendants and conclude with the odd state of human affairs in chapter 6 that led to God's decision to reboot the whole franchise. So, let's start by going ringside! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event! brother of all rivalries, Cain and Hevel. You know, we seem to know so much about these brothers from the few cryptic verses provided in the text, but, but can we say that this archetypal story of sibling rivalry delivers the goods? Or, instead, does it provide a vague yet sturdy enough skeleton upon which future stories might add muscle and sinew? Though I've always been taught that in the Torah there are no extra words, it would have been nice if, in some places, There had been a few more. This story in Genesis omits as much as it reveals. So, let's start with what we know. There's Cain, a farmer. Hevel, a shepherd, gifts to God. Cain is rejected. Hevel's is accepted. Some dialogue back and forth. A murder, then a punishment. But here's what we don't know. We know nothing of the relationship between Cain and Hevel or between the brothers and their parents. We know nothing of their relationship with God. In verse 3... There is some gift giving, why did Kain initiate it? Was it part of a regular routine or something that Kain cooked up on his own? And are we to understand that Hevel's gift giving was a unique gesture or was he simply mimicking his older brother and one-upping him in the process? We don't know. As to the gifts themselves, was there something about the quality of the gift? of Cain's gift, that could explain why God had no regard for it? Are we to make the inevitable comparisons as the text describes Hevel's gifts as coming from, quote, the firstborn of his flock from their fat parts? Has the text made us complicit in this favoritism as well? Then how are we to understand God's rebuke slash pep talk to Kain that might enlighten us about Kain's gift or motives for giving it or his relationship to his brother. God says, quote, It is not thus, if you intend good, bear it aloft, but if you do not intend good, at the entrance is sin, a crouching demon toward you, his lust, but you can rule over him. So is intending good referring to the gift-giving? Is God telling Cain that if his gift was given with good intentions, he should be happy, but if he was doing it for less charitable reasons, bad thoughts might lead to bad choices and bad actions? Is this admonishment foreshadowing what is to come? I guess so. As Hevel would serve as convenient target for Kine's displaced anger with God, and the text, I suppose, makes this connection as the next verse finds Kine back with Hevel, saying something to him. Again, what that is is unknown. And then the scene suddenly shifts to the field where Kine quote, rose up against Hevel and killed him. The exchange that follows between God and Kine is rather dramatic, and although, again, it's pretty, a pretty critical question, it goes unanswered. When Kine asks, am I the watcher of my brother, there is no doubt that the answer is clearly yes. Why doesn't God say so? The links in the chain of events here seem clear because we have seen this sibling rivalry story elaborated upon much more explicitly in a handful of Shakespeare plays, Steinbeck's East of Eden, and weekly on The Simpsons. We understand this story because it is very real to those of us with siblings. Even though this tragic song is rather simple and terse, it hits enough of the right notes to remain memorable. So Cain, the farmer, is condemned by God to wander, cut off from his livelihood and the community. However, the concern Cain expresses over being the target of revenge moves God to place upon him a sign, a mark of Cain. This term, mark of Cain, has undergone a semantic change called pejoration, where a word's meaning is downgraded or depreciated and and its once positive association becomes negative. Villain, for example, used to mean serf or peasant in Middle English. Animosity used to mean courage or high spirits. This process is much more common than its opposite amelioration, where a word's meaning becomes elevated or appreciated. Negative term becomes positive term. In rare cases, the word's meaning can swing both ways, as in the case of hoi polloi, where, because of its use in the title of a Three Stooges 1935 short, folks thought that the term referred to the rich elite Mo, Larry, and Curly were making fun of, whereas it actually refers to the unwashed. So, what we colloquially regard as a stain, a stigma, a mark of dishonor, was actually meant to protect Kine, a turnabout that is even more poignant considering that early Christian conceived of this mark through skin color. For these folks, Cain's curse and his mark was black skin. The earliest source for this comes from an Armenian Adam book entitled History of Cain. That is, it's one of the many Christian reworkings of the various Jewish Adam legends. The text comes from the 5th or 6th century where it states, quote, And the Lord was wroth with Cain. He beat Cain's face with hail, which blackened like coal and thus he remained with a black face. This belief was also common amongst uh, Mormons, who, in light of the language in the Book of Alma, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, prohibited black people from being priests because Lamanites were cursed with dark skin. This ban, according to Mitt Romney, was lifted in 1978. Corporations are people, my friend. Anywho, so God plants this mark on Cain and and, and Cain is thus protected, but who would avenge Hevel? His sheep? And for a man doomed to wander, how is it that he settles down and establishes a city named after his son, Hanoch, or Enoch, who was born to him and his unnamed wife? In short, where did all these people come from? From where did all the women appear to assist in the beginning of Irad Mechuyael, Metushael, and Lemech? That's right, we're digging into the begats. The begats in Genesis provides a fascinating glimpse into the biblical understanding of time as articulated in the symbolic significance of numbers. The number seven figures prominently as Jewish tradition regards it as the number of spiritual perfection. Perhaps because sheva, seven, is closely related to the word for savea, or full, satisfied, or have enough. The number ten is, uh, is also significant, as the number of divine perfection. Why ten? Perhaps because we have ten built into our bodies. We have ten fingers and ten toes. So it is no coincidence that Lemech is the first of the descendants of Cain to merit any mention beyond his name in, ready, seven generations. He marries Ada and Sila, the first wives in seven generations to merit their own names. Lemech is the father of Yaval, who would establish nomadism. Yuval, the founder of the musical arts, and Tuval Cain, the father of metalworking. Most notably, Lemech is also the author of a song in verses 23 and 24, which is structurally and linguistically an example of early Hebrew poetry, and hints heavily that he avenged Hevel's murder by killing Cain. I, a man I kill for wounding me, a lad for only bruising me. I, if sevenfold vengeance be for Cain, then for Lemech, seventy-sevenfold. There's that seven again. The subsequent verse requires a bit of jump back with the begats, announcing the birth of yet another son to Eve, Shet or Seth, to replace Hevel and Sire a line of righteous humans as opposed to the accursed line emergent from Cain. Shetz, Son, Enosh, or Enos, a name now synonymous with mortal or human, and they, at the conclusion of chapter 4, are the first humans to, quote, call out to the name of Adonai. Well, isn't that special? We meet Lemech again in chapter 5, where he's also listed as the father of Noach and enters into colloquial Hebrew as the synonym for Shlemiel. That's right. Lemech means Shlemiel. We also meet Hanoch again, this time a descendant of shit. Incidentally, this recycling of names, though good for the environment, is not so good for the reader. It was this tendency to recycle which also made my reading and following the action in the Book of Mormon terribly difficult, which is why, after trying a couple of times, I just kind of put it aside and just waited for the musical, which straightened everything out. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe. Set his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon, and a Mormon just believes. Incidentally, Hanoch is also an interesting character. Chapter 5 uh, reboots the beginning, this time from Shet's family tree, and marches up the trunk listing names and ages and, and very little else. Then 20 verses in, we get to Hanok, whom the text describes twice as, quote, walking in accord with God before telling us that Hanok was no more, for God had taken him. Hanok, it seems, is one of the nine men taken to paradise without suffering death. In Gothic literature, Hanok ascended to heaven on God's command and became Metatron, the great scribe, not to be confused with Megatron, the great transformer leader. In a story recorded um, in the Tractate Sanhedrin, Metatron is the angel who sits at God's side and records all the good deeds of Israel. In his version of the story, the Karaite scholar Jacob Al-Kirchisani notes that Metatron was referred to as, quote, the lesser Adonai. Out of your mind? Hanoch had children, before ascending to heaven, and his children had children, and so on. And they shared the earth with giants, heroes of former ages, the men of name, who were the offspring of, quote, the divine beings and mortal women. What you talking about? What you talking about? What you talking about? What you talking about? That's, that's right. Mixed dancing with the gods. No wonder the world became an unpleasant place. As verse 5 of chapter 6 reports, this motley crew of individuals of varying sizes and lineages drove God to regret the day he had ever created humanity. Quote, it pained his heart. And thus God concludes, quote, I will blot out humankind whom I have created from the face of the soil, from man to beast to crawling thing and to the fowl of the heavens, for I am sorry that I had made them. And so we meet Noah, son of Lemech, the simpleton, whom God tasks with building an ark of gopher wood, reeds, and pitch. One can only imagine how this project was received by the neighbors. You're out of your mind. And yet, Noah continued to work and gathered up pairs of living things, food, and other supplies for the trip. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a faithful trip that started from this tropic boy, for this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailor, man, a brave and sure. My passengers said sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. In chapter 7, God amends the instructions, asking Noah to collect seven pairs of all ritually pure animals. There's that seven again. This is the first instance of purity language, or in this case, not purity language. Considering the Torah's economy of language, one would expect a pithy antonym to pure instead of the unwieldy not pure, which appears only once in the whole Tanakh here. Impure, that is tameh, appears for the first time as an antonym for pure later in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. This verse in Leviticus, though still vague about criteria, correlates purity and impurity with another important juxtaposition, sacred or kadosh and common or chol. This parallel proves especially relevant even later when we're talking about kashrut, and we'll talk about that much later. For though kashrut laws are laws that are not explained or rationalized in the text, many have argued that they are closely associated with the concept of holiness. So when it comes to food, it makes sense that purity aligns with holiness. But for the purposes of Noah's pre-flood tag and not-release program, what is a pure animal? How would Noah know one when he saw one? Again, the text doesn't say. So, quote, Noah did it according to all that God and I had commanded him. And it began to rain and rain, and rain. Glub, 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 oh, Noah, Noah, save us, save us, no! For 40 days and 40 nights, Noah and his family are buffeted by the deluge, and again, we have one of those symbolic numbers. 40 days, or 40 years, as we often will see, it is usually a stock unit of time, indicating a lot of time. But it's also regarded as the number of probation, a number signifying a period of trial and adversity. And since we're on the topic of numbers, Noah is the 10th generation since Adam, and Abraham is the 10th generation since Noah. Thus, Noah is the midpoint, a beacon of righteousness in a world of sinners. And so the world remains submerged for another 150 days. So if we calculate the time between the evocative image of God shutting the door of the ark and the moment God orders Noah and family to disembark from it, it comes out to a a year and 10 days. Or to employ a literary device known as the chiasmus, the numbers are symmetrical to each other, forming a very large X. If you have a pencil and paper handy, you'll see what I mean. So, Noah and family were told the flood would happen in seven days. Then they boarded the ark and waited seven days, and then it rained for 40 days, and then the sea levels rose for 150 days, followed by 150 days of retreat, 40 more days of waiting on board, and then an additional seven days followed by seven days more. In other words, seven, seven, forty, and 150 bring us to the end of chapter seven. And spoiler alert, these numbers are mirrored 150, 40, seven, and seven in chapter eight. Hmm, that's pretty neat. So, chapter seven concludes with the death of all living things on the land and in the air. Noah alone remained. And those who were with him in the ark fade to black. As always, feel free to leave a comment or question or criticism at the Facebook page, www.facebook.com tanachcast or you can leave a note at the blog, thenextjew.com. Thanks for joining us and look forward to you coming back again in a week to ten days or so-ish. Here at Tanakhest. Don't come back now. Here.